All right, if you got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be, and uh, we'll, we'll work through a little bit of Scripture, and uh, man, God will show us some things, and then we'll spend a great time this afternoon just enjoying lunch together. We are studying these seven churches in the book of Revelation, and, and last week we started the sixth church, which is the church of Philadelphia, and so this morning, if, if you've walked in and hadn't maybe been following the last couple of weeks, or maybe you're new this morning, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to do an extensive review, but there are seven churches that are in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and those seven churches are real churches historically. They existed during the Apostle John's day. They were all in Asia Minor, and all of those churches had real problems, and they had real issues that they had to deal with, but they also were tasked to, to make disciples of all nations, just like we are, and yet God puts those seven churches in the book of Revelation, I believe, to also show us that there are seven types of churches. As a matter of fact, through, through all of church history, if, if every church that ever existed were to go back and look at those seven churches, they would probably mirror or be similar to one of those seven churches. All of those churches, again, you know, had different challenges, had things that they needed to, to overcome, we are no different. We as a local New Testament church, we have challenges, we have things we need to overcome, so we can glean practical application from those seven churches. And yet, I believe God put those seven churches in the book of Revelation to show us the entirety, a picture of the entirety of church history, from the, from the resurrection of Christ in the book of Acts to the rapture of the church. We can actually look back, as John looks back, and see the totality of church history through these seven churches. And so these are, these are very important churches to study. We, we sang this morning about the importance of God's Word, how that God's Word is going to be eternal, and, and every word is important. And, and man, it's for our benefit and for our blessing, and it's important for us to study the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, it's one of, one of the key books in the Bible, I believe, that has a specific blessing attached to it, according to chapter 1. And so that's what we've been doing. We've tried to give due diligence to study these seven churches. And, and let me remind you that as we study, each week we're following a basic outline. We're talking about the church, and, and we learn some historical things about each church and some prophetic things about each of these seven churches. But then we secondly learn about Christ, because Christ reveals himself in a very unique way to each of these seven churches. And there's something that each of them needed to learn about his character and his nature. And then thirdly, we've studied every church has a commendation. Well, almost every church has a commendation. In other words, the Lord looks at that church and he says, here's what you're doing right. And we want to take note of that because the things that the Lord commends, we want to, we want to similarly uh, be doing those types of things. And then fourthly, he gives a correction almost to every church. And he, he kind of says, okay, you're doing some things right, but here's some things you need to correct and repent from. And, and as a church, there's things that we continually need to learn, and, and there's things that we need to continually repent of. Okay, I'm just making sure you're aware. I know it's early, but like we're not done yet. Like, like whatever you walked in with this week, there may be something that the Lord wants to add to your life but also something that you need to turn from and turn to Him in your life. So we never should get to the point that we're not repentant toward God's Word. And then fifthly, Christ issues a challenge to each of these seven churches of how to overcome 
and the blessing associated with overcoming. And so, and so last week, we started talking about the church at Philadelphia, and we went through and talked about how that word Philadelphia is actually made up of two words that literally mean brotherly love, and it, it, it's a key church for us to learn about fellowship with each other, but it also represents a time in church history from 1500 to 1900 A.D., and, and again, we'll talk about that more today. So Philadelphia does represent a specific time in church history, and then Christ reveals himself to this church in four different ways. Number one, he reveals himself in Revelation 3 and verse 7 as he that's holy, and we talked about how Christ is holy because he's God. His holiness affirms his deity, and, and, and so when you understand that Christ is holy, it ought to provoke you and I to be holy. It, his holiness, because he's God, ought to provoke our holiness. We, we don't have to follow some legalistic standard, but our perception of his holiness will motivate us to be more holy. As a matter of fact, if we struggle in that area, we probably have a skewed view of God's holiness. If we're not holy, we probably don't understand how holy God is. And that's the challenge for us, okay? And so he, he revealed himself to this church as holy. Number two, he revealed himself to this church as he that is true. And, and again, it shows us that Christ is God because he's true, because God cannot lie. Now, all of us in the room, we can lie. We, we, can, we, we have the capacity. We've told lies. We're liars. We, we, we prove that because we tell lies. We even try to butter that up a little bit because we call them white lies, right? Or we call it stretching the truth. No, okay. But God can't do that. His character and nature is such that, that he can't. God cannot lie. If he did, he wouldn't be God. And so Christ is true. And what that means is if Christ is true, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. And, and, and for you and I, we, we have to come to the place that we trust the Lord. We have to trust his word. We, we have to believe what God says. Let God be true and every man a liar, right? And, and in our culture of Christianity, there are so many different voices trying to speak into our life through social media, through news, through, through tradition, through family. And listen, all those things aren't inherently bad, but there's only one source of truth, and it's God and his word. And so at the end of the day, you can trust God over your situation and your circumstances. And that's how Christ revealed himself to this church. Number three, he revealed himself as having the key of David. And keys unlock and grant access to things in the Bible. We said that that doctrinally unlocks the treasure of God's people, Israel. Doctrinally, that's what it points to. But, but practically or inspirationally, that key of David unlocks the treasure of God's word, and God's work. And we're going to talk more about that today. And then he revealed himself, fourthly, as he that openeth and shutteth. And I'm just telling you, God is so powerful. God can open the eyes of the blind. We, we looked at that last week. He can open hearts to the gospel. And he can open doors that no man can shut. That's how strong he is. And so this morning, we're going to focus in on the third part of the outline, which is the commendation. And so if you will, look at Revelation 3, verses 8 through 10. Let me read the text. And then I'll pray, and then we'll work through it, and then we'll be done. So Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8 says, I know thy works. So Christ is still speaking to this church at, at Philadelphia. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, 
I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we need you this morning. God, we thank you for the time of praise and worship. God, we thank you for uh, the, the, the ministry update of our missionaries. We thank you for the opportunities in front of us, God. Uh, we just thank you, Lord. You bless our church in, in so many ways that we don't deserve with, with, with the people and the opportunities and the things that we can get involved with, the mission trips. Lord, we, we're just a thankful people. Uh, God, you've even put open doors for us. As we study these open doors in this church, God, you put open doors for us to have an impact in our community and in our world. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful. We want to walk through those doors and be obedient. God, thank you for this church this morning. I pray that you speak to every one of us personally and individually, and we'll give you the glory for that. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's talk about the commendation that Christ gives this church at Philadelphia. He says in verse 8, I know thy works. And so, and so as we go through this commendation, I think there are four things that stick out in this verse that, that Christ commends this church for doing and having. Here's four things that the church of Philadelphia did or possessed. Number one, they were a working church. They were a working church because he says, I know thy works. As a matter of fact, in every one of those churches, every one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he actually uses that phrase, I know thy works. And so we need to understand that God knows the works of every church, whether we're working and what type of work we're doing. And so this was a working church. And, 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 and in other words, they were actively engaged in the mission and the ministry that God called them to do. And I wonder, when I, when I read that, I look at our church and I'm like, man, I wonder what the Lord would say about our church. Man, when the Lord looks at our church, at Community Fellowship Baptist Church, and he says, I know thy works. What would that mean for us? What kind of works does he know about us? And what kind of works are we doing? Now listen, let me just be very, very clear. You don't work to get saved. You, you don't work. You don't, you don't do your best. You don't earn your salvation. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. If somebody ever asked me, do you believe in works-based salvation? I would say, well, depending on who's asking. But I might say, I do believe in works-based salvation. But it's Christ's finished work on the cross. It's nothing that I can do. It's nothing that I can earn from God. It's only believing what Christ has done. Our salvation is not through works. It's through, through grace, the grace of God through faith. So Ephesians says that by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And just for the record, faith is not works. Just for the record. God, God tells you in that verse that believing on the gospel is not a work. It's, it's just faith. He distinguishes the two. But, but he does tell us in verse 10, which is the very next verse, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, what? Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And, and, and if you don't know or don't recall the context of Ephesians 2, 
the point of Ephesians 2 is that Christ has put both Jew and Gentile in one body, the body of Christ. And that body is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And his body, the church, is this workmanship that was created for good works. And so, man, I don't know how else to say it. Your salvation is not earned by works. You don't work to get saved. But the expectation is that we work because we're saved. That's the expectation. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. He says in, in verse 9 that we are laborers together with God. We're laborers, right? You're God's husbandry, you're God's building. And he gives two different analogies, a vineyard and a building. He says, according to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another buildeth thereupon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work, every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so, by his, yet so as by fire. Ah, tongue twister. So here's the point. We didn't, get, we didn't get saved by our works, but because we are saved, we are to work. We're to labor together with God in the ministry. And so get this key in your notes. The foundation of the work of the ministry is the gospel. That's the foundation. And listen, if you're saved in the room this morning, you know that that foundation has been established in your life. You know that the foundation has been laid. Your eternal destiny is secure in Christ. But listen, you have the opportunity both individually and we have the opportunity corporately to build upon that foundation. And God expects us to build wisely. As a matter of fact, here's the next key. How we build on that foundation and what we build upon that foundation is of utmost importance. God really is interested in how we build and what building materials we're using in the work of the ministry. And the reason why is because, because it's what ultimately brings honor and glory to him. And he's going he's gonna to hold us accountable for that. He's going to judge us for that. He's, he's going he's to have us stand and give an account of what we've done since the foundation of the gospel has been laid. So look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. The Bible says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And just for the record, that word all means all. It doesn't mean a select few. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or, or bad. And, and, and again, man, we could spend all morning on this, this topic of the judgment seat of Christ and what that is. It's not a judgment for your sin or my sin, but it is a judgment of our service to the Lord. We're going to stand and give an account of how we have labored 
in the Lord, how we've co-labored with him. And so I just want to encourage you, Philadelphia was a working church. It was, it was a laboring church. As a matter of fact, that the time period that it represents from 1500 to 1900 AD was the greatest time of missions and church planning and mission sending this world has ever seen. From 1500 to 1900 AD, which is the time period that this inspirationally points back to, man, the gospel got to the world. It got to the world. Now, we're going to talk about why that happened, and we also have to beg the question, why is it not happening now? Why is it not happening now? Just, just know that this church at Philadelphia was a working church. Number two, we need to learn from this. This church at Philadelphia was a weak church because he says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, for thou hast a little strength, a little strength. And so they were a weak church. They weren't a strong church. And here's the key in your notes. This church worked in spite of their weakness. They worked in spite of their weakness. I mean, this was a weak church that still chose to work. They didn't sit back and make excuses for what they didn't have. All they had was a little strength, but that's all they needed. That's all they needed because it's God and His Word that do the work anyways. And I'm just telling you, man, God can use a weak church, and God can use a weak Christian. He can use a weak church. He can use a weak Christian. Can, can you go back, again, inspirationally, 1500 to 1900 AD. Can I just tell you some things that weren't in existence back then? The Gutenberg press, the, the movable type press, had just been invented in 1440. So the ability to mass produce manuscripts and books and things like that had just come into existence in 1500. Automobiles didn't, didn't come into existence until like 1672. I think the first one was like steam-powered. I don't know all of you are thinking like Model A and Henry Ford, but that was much later. 1600s is when the automobiles came upon the scene. Electricity, hello, 1700. Ben Franklin, kite, key, lightning, you guys know the story. Airplanes, 1903, Wright Brothers. None of that stuff was, was available. There was no internet, there was no Google, there were no computers, there were no mobile devices. And yet in their weakness, from a church history standpoint, they accomplished much. They got the gospel to the world. Okay, so, so my point, and I think the Scripture's point is, you don't have to be strong and you don't have to have all the resources. God is able to exercise His strength in our weakness. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is praying because he has a, an ailment. He has a thorn in the flesh. He has a, a messenger of Satan that's been assigned to, to discourage him and to buffet him personally. And, and he asked the Lord three times to, to take this thing away, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, whoever it was. And, and God didn't take it away. By the way, if God's going to answer anybody's prayer in the Bible other than Christ, I think he would answer Paul's prayer. And he prayed three times, and the Lord said no. Okay. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said unto me, this is God speaking to Paul now, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in what? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Okay, so, so he gave Paul some understanding. You have little strength. In other words, you're weak. But my, my strength's made perfect in, the, in that circumstance. 
So, so like Paul, many times we pray and ask God to take the things out of our life that make us weak, that make us distraught, that discourage us, that, that, that are our infirmities. And yet, God sometimes says, you know what, that's the very thing that you need to remind you that you have to rely on my strength. So Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I mean, Paul understood, I would rather have the power of Christ than the power of Paul. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses. And listen, you know on Wednesday night, those are generally the things that we pray would just go away. But Paul says, I take pleasure in that because of Christ's sake, when I'm weak, then I'm what? And I'm just telling you, man, God's strength's perfect strength. Nobody's stronger. So, so here's the key. The truth is we can't be too weak for God to use, but we certainly can be too strong. We, we can't be w- too weak for God to use. And, and maybe you're here this, this morning or maybe you're watching the live stream and you would say, man, I can't serve God because of fill in the blank. Here's what I have going on physically, emotionally, circumstantially. You don't understand my home. You don't understand my resources or lack of resources. I don't have to understand them. I'm just telling you that God's strength is made perfect in your weakness and in my weakness. And corporately as a church, we don't have to have all the bells and whistles. As a matter of fact, in our weakness, Christ's strength is perfected and he gets the glory. So 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25, God God tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I mean, even on a bad day, which God doesn't have a bad day. Even if he were weak, which he's not. But his weakness is stronger than anything that we could do. Paul, Paul, when he was preaching in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 to 5, I was with you in weakness. So Paul ministered in the midst of his weakness. It's no excuse. And again, man, listen, I'll be the first guy to tell you, it's hard to do it. It's hard to do it when you don't feel it, when you're weak, when you've got everything going on, when you don't feel prepared. Listen, Paul ministered in those circumstances. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. In other words, I said stuff that probably sounded like a, if you opened your cabinet and got all the metal pans out and then just threw them down the stairs, ting, 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 blah, blah, that's probably what it sounded like. It's not with enticing words of man's wisdom that Paul preached with. Thank God. That gives a bumbling idiot from South Alabama hope. But his preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And here's why. He says to the Corinthians that your faith shouldn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, so we, we can learn from Philadelphia that we can't be too weak for God to use. We need to learn that we can, we can have faith in the wisdom of God and the power of God, and God can use us in spite of us. And, and corporately, God can use us in spite of us. We can be a little church with little strength that God can use mightily because he gets the glory for that. 
You see, our weakness, both individually and corporately, can either be an excuse not to do the work of the ministry, or it can be an opportunity to experience Christ's strength working through us. And and we have to choose. It's either going to be an excuse, or it's going to be an opportunity to experience Christ's strength. So which one is it? Philadelphia is a weak church, and, and they experience historically what I believe one of the greatest moves of God there has ever been. God used that weak, weak church, and, and again, representative of the church history period, that weak few hundred years where they didn't have everything, but they had all they needed. Number three, Philadelphia was a withholding church. Look what, what God says about it. Number, number three is, he says of this church at Philadelphia that, that you've kept my word. He says it again in verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. And so this is, this is kind of the point where, where we need to just drill down a second on God's word and the importance of God's word. And again, if, if you're newer to our church, man, listen, we, we value God's word. We believe it's perfect. We believe it's preserved. We believe we can trust it. We don't think there's error in it. What's interesting is, is as you study the book of Acts, from the book of Acts forward, what you see is two key cities emerge in history. And these two key cities have two different types of Christians that emerge from them and ultimately result in two different emerging lines of Bibles. And the first city is called Antioch of Syria. And, and I got a lot of stuff in my notes, and I know you don't have the blanks, so maybe use the backside to jot some stuff if you want. You don't have to do that. But, but can I just tell you, Antioch is a key city in the Bible one of the first deacons was from this city of Antioch in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, a man named Nicholas. He was one of the first deacons appointed in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. The first Gentile awakening, in other words, not just Jews hearing the gospel in the book of Acts, but Gentiles, non-Jewish people, happened in Antioch. And you find that in Acts 11, verses 19 to 21, where where the gospel gets into Antioch and the Grecians begin to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so there's this huge Gentile awakening happening at Antioch. In Acts 11 and verse 26, the Bible says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. And the words of the famous prophet Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. And so Antioch is where the first Christians were actually named Christian in Acts 11 and verse 26. The first Bible teachers were found in the church at Antioch, Acts 13 and verse 1. As a matter of fact, it's the only time the word teacher shows up in the book of Acts. There were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And included in that group was a guy named Barnabas and also Saul, who, who was Paul. The first missionaries that were sent out of the church, out of a local church, were sent out of the church at Antioch. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 to 3. And so what you have through this city of Antioch is a key model for local church ministry, but also historically through this city, you have the Word of God and manuscripts that come through the city of Antioch that are preserved through the priesthood of believers. God's Word came through historically and was preserved by 
the priesthood of believers in Antioch. In other words, those manuscripts ultimately resulted in Bible translations today. But there's a second city we've got to take note of, and that city is the city of Alexandria. And that's Alexandria, Egypt. And when you study Alexandria through the Bible, again, you find a different type of church and a different type of Christian and a different type of manuscript. The Alexandrians in Acts chapter 6 are the ones that were disputing against Stephen while he was preaching. Acts chapter 6 verse 9 It says that they disputed against Stephen. Stephen was a deacon. Stephen was full of the Spirit of God. Stephen was preaching to the nation of Israel. And you got these educated dudes that were disputing against him. But verse 10 says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which he spake. Okay, so so Alexandria is connected with disputers of those that preach God's Word. In Acts chapter 18, you find that a man from Alexandria is preaching false doctrine. It's a guy named Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 25. And again, just jot it down. But there's a dude that comes on the scene preaching, and he's, he's zealous and he's full of fervor, but he's preaching John's baptism. Now listen, if that doesn't give you a red light, it ought to, because Paul wasn't preaching John's baptism for salvation. Paul was preaching the gospel of the grace of God. But in Acts 18, this guy from Alexandria named Apollos was preaching the baptism of John. In other words, be baptized to be saved. Well, that was for the nation of Israel before the cross and the nation of Israel in Acts chapter 2. That's where that fits for the the baptism of John. But now Paul is converted. Paul has been commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentile world, and the the, the means of salvation is not baptism of of John the Baptist, it's faith in the finished work of Christ. And so Alexandria is connected to bad teaching. It's false doctrine. Thankfully, this eloquent man was humble enough to receive instruction, and he got corrected on his doctrine. But Alexandria is always connected to disputers against God's Word, to, to bad Bible doctrine, it was a ship from Alexandria that takes Paul to Rome through imprisonment. And it's, it's through Alexandria that, and ultimately through Rome that corrupted manuscripts influenced some translations of the Bible. And so that's not the point this morning, but, but I, I, I can't make the point without making another point. God commended the church at Philadelphia for keeping his word, for guarding it for obeying it, for, 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 for preserving it. It's an important thing for you to know what God's Word is. If you don't know what God's Word is, how can you keep it? And, and we live in a weird time in Christianity where, where Bible translations, it's like going to Baskin-Robbins. Anybody like Baskin-Robbins? That's, that's one of I know, Allie's like, yep. That's, that's, that's usually our, like every other Friday night thing, man. Friday night is like family date night and ice cream. So my kids are conditioned. Friday night, you, you generally, uh, with, with very few exceptions, but there are exceptions, but Friday night is family date night, and we go get ice cream somewhere. And so we walk into Baskin-Robbins, right? And the first thing, I, look, I'm, I'm the guy that I don't even have to look through the, the cases. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's only one good ice cream at Baskin-Robbins, okay? There's only one. It's the gold medal ribbon. And if you get anything else, I'm, I'm sorry. You're just selling yourself short. 
Okay. I don't even have to look, but man, my kids go in and it takes like 10 minutes. It takes 10 minutes. You know, they're looking at the different colors and we got to taste some and we got to do these different things. And then they finally land on this sugary, god awful, whatever, you know, whatever they, whatever they land on. I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole, by the way. And they're just eating it up. It's horrible. And then we try to put them to bed and they won't go to sleep. Okay. So, (laughs) but man, modern Christianity is a lot like Baskin Robbins because the truth is you can walk in and get any flavor of the Bible you want. And generally, the preference and the, and the position to choose that is based on what I like, what I'm comfortable with, what I can understand. And, and, I, and I'm trying to be careful, but, but, but it is such that it's an important conversation. You, you see, the reason that Philadelphia got the commendation that they kept, they kept God's word, number one, is because they had it. What they had in their hand was God's word. You see, as we study Thyatira and Sardis, God, God shows us through those churches that the, that the word of God was taken out of the hands of the common man through the dominance of Satan's false religious system. But in Philadelphia, can I just tell you the, the, the ability for God to preserve his word and then to put it in a universal language called English and translated from manuscripts that could be traced back to Antioch of Syria through the the priesthood of believers. Once the word of God got in the hands of the common man, they obeyed it and they took them to the end of the world. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. And, and, And a key marker of the Philadelphia church age is that the word of God got into the hearts of men and it got into the hearts of men in the world and God did it through an English Bible And he turned on the light. He turned on the lights so that men could know God. And and again, man, we'll, we'll have another conversation about Bible translations. But you need to know where God's words are today. And the reason you need to know where they are is because you can't keep what you don't have. You can't keep what you don't have. And it, and it bothers me a little bit because when we have this conversation with, with, with anyone about Bible translations and the differences and think, man, people are emotional. It's also, it's also like me telling you, like, if you eat anything other than gold medal ribbon at Baskin Robbins, you're just wasting your time. People get offended at that statement. Some of you are like, man, you're crazy. Well, that's okay. You're wrong. Anyways, okay. <laughs> you can't keep what you don't have. And two things that are different can't be the same. That's right. right? Things that are different can't be the same. And so if we, if we just take that approach to Bibles and we put them in the scales, well, things that are different aren't the same. So how can they all be God's Word? And how can they all have God's words if some of them are missing verses and entire passages and half chapters, Mark chapter 16, for example. You can't keep what you don't have. The church at Philadelphia was commended because they kept God's word. Let's go really quick. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Paul tells Titus, a minister, a pastoral epistle. He says, Hold, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convince the gainsayers. God says you need to hold fast the faithful word. And if you can't find it, you can't hold it. 
And if it exists in some original manuscript, in some original writing by some original author, then the truth is you'll never get your hands on it. And you can't hold it. You can't have it. And, and therefore, you can't keep it. It's foolish. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16 says that we're called to hold forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ and have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3 says, hold, form, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Timothy had the Holy Scriptures in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, but they weren't the originals. Anybody that thinks that Timothy had the originals in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, well, okay, I, we got to get to lunch, but let me just tell you, that, that's foolish. But there is this standard argument concerning Bible translations that only the original author and the original copy and the original intent is what you somehow have to use scientific method and critical theory to get back to. The problem is it doesn't hold up even with the scriptures. I was reading this week in Exodus chapter 32 and Moses comes off the mountain with the tablets of stone that God had wrote his Ten Commandments on. That's the original copy by the original author. And he comes off the mountain, and Israel is in sin, and they're, they're worshiping this golden calf, and Aaron's leading the charge, and, and, and man, Moses comes off the, the mountain, and, and Moses is hot, man. The Bible says he, his anger waxed hot. I can relate to a guy like Moses. <laughs> I feel like every time I get in the car and drive down the road, that's kind of what happens. <laughs> And when he saw what Israel was doing, the Bible says that he cast the tables out of his hands and he break them beneath the mount. Well, well, the original author and the original writing and the original manuscript argument breaks down right there because even the Ten Commandments were destroyed. The original. You're not going to get the original. They don't exist. But God, through the priesthood of believers, has preserved his word in a very precise and particular manner and just know that Satan also is very alive and well and hoping to counterfeit God's word. I'm not saying if you use another Bible that you're satanic. I'm not saying that at all. But, but I am saying you have to consider the role of the enemy in this conversation. Why is it, like Baskin-Robbins, there's 600 million different translations of God's word? Well, because somebody doesn't want you to keep what you can have. That's why. This church kept it. And because they kept God's word, he says in the same verse, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. So when you keep God's word, it keeps you from temptation. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, the problem is that, that we many times in this church would say we have God's word, but many times we don't keep it. And the reason we don't keep it, and, and ultimately the result of not keeping it, is that we find ourselves continually walking in sin. When you keep God's word, it'll keep you from temptation. Doctrinally, I think it points to the fact the church doesn't go through the tribulation, but we'll park that for another conversation. Let's get to the last point. This church, lastly, was a witnessing church. It was a witnessing church. Christ says of this church that you haven't denied my name. You've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. Do you guys remember a guy named Peter in the Bible? Three of you. 
you might want to read the Bible, the rest of you. I'm not, not sure. A uh, guy named Peter, you know, an apostle, disciple of Christ, full of pride, uncommitted in prayer. You know that guy right before Jesus' betrayal. Matthew 26, verse 34, right? Man, I'll, verse 33 and 34, I'll never be offended because of you, Jesus. I'll go to, you, I'll go to the death with you. And then the Lord turns around and is like, hey, uh, actually in less than 24 hours, you're going to deny me three times. Peter was full of pride. He was uncommitted in prayer. We find him falling asleep in the garden. The proof's in the pudding. Matthew 26, verses 69 to 74. As Christ is now betrayed, he, he, he denies Christ in his name three times. And I think for every disciple in this room, we ought to take note Because if Peter can do it, you can too. God commended this church at Philadelphia because they they weren't ashamed of the Lord's name. Matthew 10 and verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And again, I know the context of Matthew 10. We're not talking about salvation, but we are talking about testimony and witness Listen, how can we not speak Christ's name? But many times we do. Many times we deny him in front of our coworkers, our family, our friends, our neighbor. We'll talk about everything else and everybody else except the one name that is above all names. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says that there's salvation. There's not salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is the name above all names. It is the name of forgiveness and salvation and restoration through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Why would we deny that? But we do, man. When when given opportunity, many times we fail. This church didn't fail. They said, you haven't denied my name. And so here's what Christ did. I know your notes are almost done. Here's what Christ did. Number one, he set before them an open door. So because of the things that the church at Philadelphia did, Well, Christ did some things. The first thing that he did was he gave them an open door. And we talked about how God is so powerful that only God can open doors, only God can close doors. He set before this church an open door. And listen, when Christ opens a door, he expects his church to go through it and to take advantage of it. And listen, you don't have to have all the strength you think you need. You just need a little strength and an open door. And God will do some pretty amazing things with that. God will do some amazing things. And so get this in your note. The open door that God gives us are opportunities to preach the gospel. I know you thought the open door meant your next job, the person you're supposed to marry, what your next hobby is supposed to be. God, I really wish you'd give me an open door to figure this out. No, the open door that God gives us is the opportunity to preach the gospel. Those are the open doors that God puts in front of a faithful church. You guys okay? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of who? So what was Paul's intention when he went to to Troas? I'm going to preach the gospel. And it just so happened that, that when he was purposed rightly in his heart, well, God opened a door. And I mentioned this last week, but it's worth the re-preach this week. I think sometimes we don't get open doors because we're not fully purposed to preach. I mean, Paul went to Troas to preach the gospel. 
but God still had to open the door. But because he was purposed, man, it's God's will that all men be saved. And so God opened the door for him. Man, if we're not purposed to preach, I doubt we're going to get open doors to do ministry. Number two, and this is not numbered in your notes, but we have to pray for these open doors. Colossians 4 and verse 3, Paul's in prison. And he doesn't pray for the prison doors to open. What he prays for is the door of personal evangelism to open. Look what it says, Colossians 4 and verse 3. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of this prison so I can get up out of here. That's not what he said. I'm praying that God would open a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also am in bonds. Paul didn't want personal freedom. He wanted the door of personal evangelism. How about you? How much do you pray for those opportunities? We pray every Wednesday night, by the way, at 6.30. And one of the things we pray for is the people that need to hear the gospel in our community. Know that these open doors also come with problems. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9 says, A great door and effectual is open unto me. Again, Paul's saying, look, God opened the door for ministry, but he says there are many adversaries. And so just because you have an open door for ministry doesn't mean it's going to be an easy door. The devil's always at work. And lastly, as, as God opens the door, man, we ought to rejoice when God does that. Look at Acts 14 and verse 27. They were come together. They gathered their church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them, how he opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Man, we were to rejoice when God does that. So listen, man, and, and have grace to hear this. Most Christians will live out their Christian life having never led a single person to Christ. And many, if not most Christians, will live out their Christian life having never even preached the gospel one single time to another human being. My brethren and sisters, these things ought not to be. God is the God of the open door. And God help us to, to pray for that, be purposed for that, anticipate the problems, but trust God enough to, to walk through the open door. The last thing that God does, and, and we're done, is he sets these liars straight. And I don't want to spend the time because we're out of time, but, but look at the last part of the verse, verse 10. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I will make them come and worship before thy feet to know that I've loved thee. And there's a whole lot we could talk about. I actually have two pages worth of notes. Here's a, here's a case of mistaken identity. It is possible to say that you are something and someone that you're truly not. That applies both biblically and in our culture today, right? The, 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 the battle is over identity. These people were saying that they were Jews. God says you're not really a Jew. You're actually something else. Here's what you need to know. It was under the influence of Satan because Satan works in the realm of false religion. Satan works in the realm of false religion. Satan has a synagogue. He has a seat. He has people that think they're something that they're not. And God says those guys are liars. They're liars. And we could, we could spend a lot of time there, but we don't have the time. But let me challenge you as we close. Would God commend this church like he commended Philadelphia? And would God commend us as individual Christians like he commended Philadelphia? Man, are we a working church? 
And by default, if we're a working church, that means we have working members. We're laboring in the ministry together. Are we a weak church? I hope so. Because if we're weak, then he can be strong. Man, are we holding on to his words? A withholding church. Well, we say we have this book and we say we have God's word. What are we doing with it? And you may be here today and you say, well, I'm not really sure we can have God's word today. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Stick around. Because you can't keep what you don't have. And we've got to be a witnessing church. And God, give us the opportunity to share the gospel. Amen? Let's pray for that and we'll, we'll be ready to dismiss. Father, we love you. God, again, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this church.